I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to my colleague James Meek, a contributing editor at the LRB, who reported from Kiev for The Guardian in the early 1990s and was for many years that paper's Moscow correspondent. He also reported from Afghanistan and Iraq when the United States and its allies, including the UK, invaded those countries. His fifth novel, To Calais in Ordinary Time, came out in 2019. He reported for the LRB from Kiev in the run-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, and we last spoke on this podcast at the beginning of March. He returned to Ukraine in July and has a piece in the current issue of the paper reporting from Mikolaev. There's also a short film that you can see on our website. Hello, James, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, nice to be here. So I suppose the first question would be, why why Mikolaev? Why is it such a strategically important city in this war? It's become an important city, this, this relatively uh, little known in the outside world part of Ukraine, although it is a, a big city, normally in peaceful times, about half a million people. It's become important just for strategic reasons because of, of where it lies. It does seem that, we can't be sure, of course, but, but there are so many um, pointers to the fact that the sort of the base aim for Russia was to, as well as to take the Donbass in the east, was to take the whole of the um, of the south coast of the whole of the coast of Ukraine. All of Ukraine's coast is on the Black Sea. Before Russia seized Crimea, basically the whole of the north of the Black Sea coast belonged to Ukraine. So when Russia seized Crimea, Russia began taking this attitude that this is Russia, that Crimea is Russia. Nobody else um, outside a few countries recognized this, but um, their idea was this is Russia. Crimea is, is our jewel, is our prize. It's where we have the Black Sea fleet based at Sevastopol. And we must protect this. So when Russia talks about NATO threatening Russia, it's important to remember that in their mind, this includes Crimea, even though Crimea doesn't belong to them. Um, as far as they're concerned, it does belong to them. It's always belonged to them. It's theirs by right. Um, they have it by force. They're not going to, to give it up. And as long as Ukraine insists that Crimea belongs to them, uh, as, as the world recognizes, uh, they feel that this part of Russia is, is threatened. So this war has been about many things, but one of the key things it's been about is gaining hard physical control and perhaps actual ownership of the entire Black Sea coast of Ukraine. So all that land that is just north of, of Crimea along the coast, which runs in the west from the River Danube and the River Dniester uh, to uh, where the Romanian border is, um, through Edessa, and then all the way east to the Donbass, to the, the unfortunately now famous city of, of Mariupol. Now, Mikolaev and Kherson, 
are these two large Ukrainian port cities to the north and to the northwest of Crimea, which basically stand in the way of Russian forces coming east from Donbass, coming north from Crimea, and taking that, that big swathe of, uh, of coast, uh, including Odessa, all the way to the Danube, and also, importantly from the Russian point of view, linking up to Russian forces in the yet another um, of the many unrecognized Russian-controlled enclaves outside Russia, the, uh, the Republic of, of Transnistria in, uh, in Moldova. So basically, we're talking about the expression, I think, has been well coined, the land bridge from Crimea to Russia. And there was, this was before the war started. People are talking a lot about this. Maybe this is what Russia is planning. They're planning to break out from Crimea and join Crimea across the land to Donbass. Well, they did that. But now they're trying to create this other bigger land bridge to the west, taking it all the way to, uh, to Romania, which would give them the whole North Sea coast. And Kherson and Mykolaiv are the two cities that stand in the way of them doing that. I mean, it's not just the cities that stand in the way, but there's also a series of rivers. But these cities stand on these rivers. Uh, so that is the that is the objective. And the bigger picture is that the the other big objective for Russia, apart from physical control or ownership of the entire Black Sea coast of uh, of Ukraine, was to subjugate in some manner the whole of Ukraine. And um, clearly, with the whole um, east and the south taken over by Russia, the situation of the, the great cities of the of the upper Dnieper, namely Zaporizhzhia, um, Dnipropetrovsk, or Dnipro, as it's called now, and Kiev itself, would look very perilous indeed. Um, they would find themselves very much squeezed in this in this vice. You would have the, um, the Russian-controlled Belarus to the north. You would have Russian forces in the east, and you would have the whole of the um, of the Black Sea coast under Russian control. So it would be very very difficult then for much of Ukraine to to survive as as a free country uh, in those circumstances. So those those are the stakes. That is why Russia wants to to push west from Crimea. Now, at the beginning of the war, as we all know, attention was focused on, on Kiev uh, and Kharkiv and the failures of the Russians when they tried to do too many things at once. They tried to attack everywhere with too few forces uh, and they got beaten in many places. The attention on the Ukrainian success around Kiev and Kharkiv distracted the world from the disastrous Ukrainian defeats in the south. What happened was that the Russians poured north out of Crimea and they were able to take the city of Kherson almost without a fight. And that's on the west bank of the Dnieper. So they were able to cross because that this, the Dnieper River, which divides Ukraine in two. Yes, the Dnieper does, as you say, divide uh, Ukraine into, into two. It runs from the north to the south out into the Black Sea. It runs all the way from, from Belarus, from the, the swamps on the Ukrainian-Belarus border, down through the country to the Black Sea. It's a massive, massive river. 
so large that it's um, and so artificially expanded by the uh, creation of, of lakes to reservoirs to generate hydroelectric power that it's almost better thought of as a, a string of lakes like the Great Lakes in, in America than, um, than a river. You know, there are, there are points where it narrows, but even at its narrowest, uh, from a military point of view, it's very, very difficult to cross under fire. There aren't that many bridges along its, its, its length. I think there are about two dozen. So uh, it does divide the country in two. It, provides a, it should provide a kind of insurance for the west of Ukraine, um, including most of Kiev, because the Dnieper runs through Kiev, against complete Russian conquest of the country. Uh, because if you have forces arranged along the west side of the Dnieper, it's very, very difficult for an enemy then to cross. And if you go back to the Second World War, when um, the uh, the Soviet army was trying to to push the Nazis out of out of the Soviet Union, although people talk a lot about the the Battle of Kursk, the Battle of Stalingrad, actually the Battle of the Dnieper, the um, Soviet efforts to cross that river under German fire was an extraordinary uh, campaign. And in fact, you know, you, you do start to think, perhaps looking at, at the history of the Second World War through the, um, through the spectrum of, of uh, the Ukrainian point of view and, and modernity, when you look at the history, I do start to think perhaps whether the Soviet history of the Second World War was a little biased towards events that took place in the Russian part of the Soviet Union um, and a little biased against uh, crucial battles. Um, that took place in the territory of, um, of what is now Ukraine. Anyway, um, so the, this river should form a massive barrier. So even if things went catastrophically wrong for the Ukrainian military, if they lost the cities on the eastern side of the Dnieper, which would be a terrible catastrophe because there's large parts of Ukraine uh, which are completely free of Russian occupation at the moment. You're talking about Kharkiv, about Poltava, um, about Zaporizhia, um, and about much of, of Dnipro um, and, and many, many other um, large towns and, and huge swathes of land. So it would be a catastrophe, which we are a long way away from, if Ukraine were to lose the, uh, the eastern part of its country. But if that catastrophe happened, they, would, they should at least have that barrier of the Dnieper to protect half of Ukraine from further Russian invasion. But this is where it all went wrong. Um, in those early days of the war, the Russians were able to seize the bridges across the Dnieper in the south, connecting the uh, eastern part of Kherson region to the western part of Kherson region. And so they, they created this, this bridgehead. Uh, eventually, they were beaten back. They were beaten back on the outskirts of Mykolaiv um, and in another town just to the north. They were prevented from making any further advances towards Odessa. Odessa is now relatively secure. Um, Mykolaiv's position for the time being looks relatively secure. But the Russians dug in on the western side of the, of the river and they've got this, this bridgehead. And as long as that bridgehead exists, Ukraine's position as a whole, not just on any one particular front, is, is in danger. If they manage to push the Russians uh, back across the river, uh, then Ukraine is in a much more secure position. 
And not only that, I mean, I'm, this is me very much in the realms of, of speculating about the future, um, about the kind of the end game of this, uh, of this war. But it, it is possible that ideas which would have seemed very, very difficult to implement and very outlandish um, at the beginning of the war, ideas of um, safe areas protected by, by Western air power, um, ideas of no-fly zones, ideas of peacekeeping troops, um, if there is a, um, a relatively secure, defensible area in the large part of Ukraine, then um, that sort of um, idea uh, is, becomes a little more practical, at least. You can start talking about it. But as long as the Russians have that large toehold on the wrong side of the Dnieper, everything is still in play and the situation is very dangerous for Ukrainians. So there's this, you describe it as a, as a front line between Mikhailov and Kherson. That Mikolaev is still Ukraine-controlled, Kherson is Russian-controlled. They're however many kilometers apart, and the and the armies they're dug in in trenches, facing each other in the countryside between these two cities, and and every night different kinds of bombs are are being fired across this front line. But it's more or less it's a stalemate. There's not any movement here, right? So I mean, it's not it's not quite the First World War, but you have soldiers in trenches and cities on opposite sides shooting at each other and not much movement. Is that right? It's not a complete stalemate, but it is certainly more of a stalemate than the than the Ukrainians would like. They are dug in in trenches and in some cases more than trenches. Uh, there have been a lot of reports and, and some um, video uh, evidence that the Russians have been putting in concrete fortifications to shore up their their defences. They have who knows how many, sort of tens of thousands of, of troops, uh, large uh, numbers of, of armored vehicles, anti-aircraft missiles, and a large quantity of, of fuel and ammunition. And uh, they are they are very very well entrenched. And it's not been completely static in the sense that over the past couple of months, um, the Ukrainians have taken a few, literally a few villages in the north of the uh, of the Russian bridgehead. Uh, but each of those villages was one with enormous expenditure of, um, of blood and, uh, and equipment. There are scores, hundreds of villages to that would have to be taken or bypassed if Russia were, if, if Ukraine was to succeed in, in beating back the, um, the Russians. Um, having said that, they are not in quite such a bad position, the Ukrainians, as as that might make it sound, because they have, particularly with the uh, inflow of new uh, American weapons, they have been able to make the Russian situation much more precarious than it was. Um, a bridgehead, as it implies, it's, it's like one end of a bridge. Um, and if that bridge is then destroyed, then the people who are left on the uh, on the wrong end of the bridgehead uh, are in a much more vulnerable vulnerable position. Because there have been reports about those bridges, so that on on Monday that there was some British military expert claiming that those bridges in Kherson had been not destroyed but weakened to the point where they weren't really usable anymore. So implying that the the Russian bridgehead was isolated. But are those are those reports exaggerated? No, they're not exaggerated. There are three bridges we're talking about, and, and only three bridges to supply 
an army of tens of thousands of people, but also to maintain uh, with various essential supplies tens, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of civilians uh, who are still in that area. Three bridges, even if they were working, is, is not much. But uh, there are these three bridges. Each of them is different. One of them is a road bridge. One of them is a railway bridge. And another one is, I think, a road and railway bridge, but it runs along the top of a hydroelectric barrier. But in the middle of that barrier, there is a, a bridge which is like a bridge over water and, and is therefore vulnerable to shelling. Uh, these are all very, very strong structures, particularly the, the road bridge. They're made of, of heavy durable concrete, reinforced concrete um, and steel. And they were built in Soviet times with that kind of massive margin for error that they tended to build into their structures. So the Ukrainians have been firing these very, very accurate American missiles at these bridges. But each rocket is you know, relatively small. So one explosion or a dozen explosions, which you often get in, in, one, in one barrage, is not enough just to knock the bridge down, but each time they do it, it damages the bridge more, it leaves holes in, in the bridges. Whether any of them have actually lost a span, I'm not sure, but it's possible they have. Uh, but what is indisputable is that all three bridges are, if they're not un impassable to regular traffic or military traffic, if they're not completely impassable, they are near to completely impassable. Uh, and if they're not completely impassable, then they soon will be because um, it's a priority target for the Ukrainians. They're still lobbing these missiles across. Now, if all the bridges are unusable to military traffic, that's, that's a, a massive problem for the Russians and also very bad for morale, because not only do they start running out of essential supplies, whether that's uh, food or munitions, but also because they start to think, well, will we be able to get out if things turn nasty? So that does put the Russians on the back foot. However, there are other ways to cross the river and the Russians do not lack for pontoon bridges, military ferries. Uh, I, I'm not a logistician or a, or a military man. I have no idea um, about the, the sums involved here. Um, it seems to me, just kind of as a layperson, that it would be very difficult to replace three bridges with a series of of pontoon bridges and ferries, but perhaps it's possible. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's got to make things tougher for them. So um, that is the, the strength of the Russian position is its, its massive surplus of artillery and the fact that the defend, defenders are always uh, at an advantage over attackers. Uh, the disadvantage the Russians have is, is that they are at the end of a very fragile supply chain. The disadvantage the Ukrainians have is, is that they don't have the right equipment in the right quantities to, um, or, or perhaps even the right number of trained trained people to uh, to build up that massive force that can break through this uh, these defensive lines. But their advantage is that they they're, they're not in a bridgehead. Their 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 supply situation is secure, but also that they do have these these new very precise weapons, possibly assistance from uh, NATO in targeting these weapons, which has enabled them not only to drop these bridges, but also to, uh, to wipe out the um, a huge number of 
Russian supply dumps. I mean, I, I think it, it's hard to say um, what the Ukrainian strategy here is. There's been a lot of talk about an offensive, but there's also been a lot of talk from the ground. And that's certainly the impression I had when I went there about, about the difficulties of this. Uh, and and I, I don't want to exaggerate uh, my, my knowledge or, or even what I saw while I was there. And I didn't spend a huge amount of time outside the city towards the front lines. But I think back to two previous experiences I've had where I was with an army that was about to carry out an invasion, uh, carry out a big offensive. Um, once in in northern Saudi Arabia in 1991, when the um, coalition was about to try and evict Saddam Hussein from, from Kuwait, and, and once in, in Kuwait in 2003, when the Americans and the British were about to invade Iraq. Uh, and in both cases, just you could not miss the vast scale of, of preparations, uh, whether it was the, the huge convoys of vehicles on the road, the, the great mounds of, of stores that they were building up. I didn't see signs of that kind of preparation when I was in, outside the city. At most, I saw, I think, one towed artillery gun outside any of the towns and villages. I saw a couple of tanks on tank transporters, and I saw uh, a few a few trucks and ambulances. Just just small scale stuff. Now, of course, most of the army is is hiding out in the um, in in positions in the in open country under trees. Uh, but still, one would expect if a massive offensive was being prepared to see a greater, uh, more traffic, more military traffic on the roads. Now, you know, the situation is obviously very different. In those two situations, uh, the sort of American-British side, they had no concern that they were going to be bombed from the air uh, and no real concern that um, accurate missiles were going to be fired by the Iraqis at their, um, at their forces. Uh, the Ukrainians do have such concerns. You talked earlier on about bombardment, um, but it's important to understand that there are, if you're talking about Mikhailov and front lines, there are two very distinct kinds of, of bombardment. There is the front line of the troops. The troops are perhaps in their trenches, maybe a mile, a mile and a half, maybe two miles apart, They're probably just outside small arms range at, at their closest. And sometimes they shoot at each other, but not very often. Then if you go back another five miles or more from those lines, you have the lines of artillery. Uh, and those lines are at each other, hammer and tongs, all day and all night. I say hammer and tongs, that is on the Russian side, because the Russians seem to have very, very deep pockets where it comes to artillery shells. And also, there are signs that this kind of blowing up Russian artillery sites has, has made a difference. There's still unending shelling and rocketing of Ukrainian positions by uh, the Russian side. One soldier I, I spoke to when I was there, he said it's, it's, it's like a machine. It's, it's like it's automatic. It's just kind of coming over all the time. So the Ukrainian soldiers and indeed the Ukrainian artillery, they spend a lot of time just hiding, trying not to be killed. The Ukrainians shoot back, of course, as, as much as they can, but they, they're trying, partly they're trying to conserve their ammunition. Partly they are, uh, have a much greater concern than the Russian side does to try and avoid either civilian casualties or destruction of property on, 
on their you know on their own country. And and they just do try to be more discriminating and focused in, in what they shoot at. Um and um but they're still they're still doing it. So you'd have those lines, the artillery lines shooting at each other and at the the trench lines. But then further back again, you have this whole other layer where you have these these large civilian cities, Kherson and Mikhailov and, and other towns and cities, where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are still living, trying to go about their daily lives as best they can. And long range missiles are being lobbed at them. The Ukrainians probably, it's a bit, little bit uncertain, they probably don't have anything that can travel further than 50 miles. But that still gives them the um, the power to shoot quite far behind uh, Russian lines um, and into cities like Kherson to, for example, blow up the bridges. But the Russians, again, have 10, 100 times more firepower at their disposal. Uh, and they're also able to work at much greater ranges. So some of the rockets and cruise missiles and, and um, missiles they're firing at Nikolaev, for example, uh, coming from uh, hundreds, if not even a thousand miles away. So you've got these, these three layers of, um, of front line. And Mikolaev right now, and for the past few months, has been a frontline city in that sense, in a way that other cities that are perhaps better known, like Kiev or Kharkiv or Vinitsa, which was in the news um, a month ago, they, they will get missile attacks as well. They won't be so frequent. Uh, I think it's been quite a few weeks now since, uh, since Kiev was hit. Uh, and, and it does seem like a much more normal city. People in, in Mykolaiv are trying to live normal lives, but um, every night, every single night, somewhere gets a, a missile dropped on it. Have you used this great phrase in the, in the piece, collateral defiance, to describe the attempt to, to cope by carrying on as normal? But when you arrived at your first night in the hotel there, were you worried that one of these bombs might fall on your hotel? I must say, I, was, I mean, I wasn't... I wasn't exactly specifically nervous, but I was I was uh, generally uh, anxious about how it was going to go down. I mean, my the the guy who dropped me off at the hotel, you know, he's he's quipped, um, uh, "You won't have a quiet night." But in fact, although when I was there, there were a number of buildings quite close to the hotel, including another hotel um, that had been uh, smashed to rubble by by missile strikes. Um, while I was there, the missile strikes, as it happened, were, were further away in this very large, spread out city. I mean, it's, the unpredictability of it is, is, is frightening. Um, and, and like with any um, personal catastrophe, um, if, if it's happening to someone else, um, it doesn't seem quite so. The possibility of it happening to you seems quite remote. Um, I, I think there's the element of, um, of chance. You start thinking about the odds. You know, you're dividing the city into imaginary squares and sort of rolling dice and thinking how how likely is it that uh, that it'll land anywhere near me? I mean, I, I did get a message from from Mikolaev the day after I left saying that there was a missile strike on on the next block, which you know it wouldn't have done me any more harm personally than uh, some of the ones that were landing two or three miles away. But obviously, it would have made me <laughs> consider my position um, more um, more thoughtfully. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. 
To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. And are the, are the, I mean, I suppose there's no way of knowing necessarily without asking the Russians, but are the targets, are they just firing indiscriminately at the city? Because you described some of the places that have been hit, a, a university, factories, a school where soldiers had reportedly been quartered. So are they deliberately targeting these places? Or is it just if you fire enough bombs every night, some of them are going to fall on factories and schools and universities? There's a lot to unpack there. It's, it's, it's a, an important question. My assumption, I suppose, which may be wrong, my assumption is that most of the missiles that the Russians are firing do ostensibly have a military target. Now, most of them are landing on civilian objects, but that doesn't mean that at some point the Russians do not have some reason to think wrongly or otherwise, that these buildings might have been given a a military use. Um, There have been episodes in uh, Mykolaiv earlier on where actual military barracks were struck and Ukrainian um, soldiers were killed, Ukrainian military personnel. Now, you know, from, from where I'm sitting, there are no legitimate military targets in Ukraine and there never have been. Um, because the entire war is is illegitimate, and the dropping of a of a missile on anyone in Ukraine, whether they are a soldier or a civilian, is as much murder as as anything else. But if if you then kind of sort of stand back a bit and say, well, okay, look at things from the the aggressor's point of view, I suppose in their uh, strange uh, moral universe, it, it is more legitimate to to hit a soldier than to hit a civilian. And in that context, uh, there certainly has been an attempt, as you might expect, by the Ukrainians to spread their troops out. I saw no sign of military equipment in Mykolaiv at all. That doesn't mean it wasn't there, but uh, it, it's not like there's a, there are missiles and, and uh, guns poking out of, of backyards all over the place. Uh, there are a lot of people in uniform, not not as many as you might expect um, from a country so close, from a place so close to the front line. But you know there are a few, and they have the soldiers have to sleep somewhere. If they put um, hundreds of them together in a military facility, then they're simply creating a, an easy target for the Russians. So what seems to have happened is that they they've quartered sort of them in in small numbers around the city. And certainly it has been the case that in some cases they've been put in schools, not schools where children were studying, because uh, in most parts of Ukraine, the uh, remote learning from the pandemic was simply rolled over into remote learning from the uh, from the invasion. And so most of these schools didn't have any children in them. They were simply um, empty educational facilities uh, with libraries and computers and uh, and all the equipment that a school needs, um, but not teachers and children. And so, yeah, we have to put these soldiers somewhere. Let's put some of them in a school. So then uh, whether the Russians pick up on this through a, a drone photography or satellite photography, they, they see some indication whether somebody 
in Mikolaev who supports the Russian cause or is um, wants to get some money, makes a phone call or sends a message or uses an app to to give the Russians a tip off that soldiers have been entering this building. Who knows? It's a fertile field for rumor um, and malice and the possibility that somebody who simply wants a building to be uh, flattened just for kicks um, or for um, or for whatever reason could say to the Russians, um, I've seen tanks going into this building. Who knows? These are the mysteries of, of, of targeting. But... There's also the possibility that there is a, a genuine agenda somewhere within the Russian targeting system to degrade the Ukrainian economy. And it's difficult. For, for example, this, this one factory I, I visited um, where they made industrial felt. Maybe they were lying to me there, but I, I just really could see no reason, no military reason for, for hitting this factory. It was a relatively new factory. It made a, a harmless, even um, good, uh, virtuous product in the sense that it was using recycled materials to, to, to make a, a useful product that, that it has all sorts of uses. Um, it employed 50 people who've now lost their jobs. As they pointed out to me, there was literally no room in the building that was struck to put military equipment because it was full of machinery um, or, or full of product. And... Um, you know, there was nobody around muttering, um, oh, well, actually, there were soldiers here. It just seemed like a target that had either been wrongly flagged to the Russians by somebody with malicious intent or had been um, or had been chosen because here was a sign of a, uh, a flourishing Ukrainian economy that, that um, needed to be wiped out. Or perhaps even I have read suggestions that that um, one of the prime motivators of the of the Russian uh, missile bombardment operation is to fulfil a quota. Um, you have to have a number of targets. You have to fire a number of missiles. This is what we've done. Look, here's the sheet. We tick these boxes. Perhaps it's like, well, here's an industrial building that we haven't hit before. There are vehicles coming in and going out. Let's drop a missile on that. It's just speculation, but I think the bottom line is that, that whatever the reasons, it's, um, it's unjust and it's often uh, murderous in the sense of, of people being killed or, or injured. And it's, uh, it's contributing to, to the general chaos and, and obviously to the sense of, of fear, terror, low morale in, uh, in Mikolaev. And then the, the question of what these factories make and of industry that 30 or more than 30 years ago now, Mikolaev was the site of the Soviet naval shipyards employing 30,000 people, and that was that was what the, the city did. Yeah, that was Mikolaev. It was until, I think, even after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, it, it remained a closed city. So uh, you had to have special permission if you were Soviet um, or even Ukrainian, um, and you, you weren't supposed to go there at all if you were a foreigner. Uh, I mean that that soon changed after independence, but um, but it was um, a top secret site. Um, it was one of the two or three great naval shipyards in the Soviet Union, and it's sort of grand. It made all sorts of things, but its grand specialty uh, specialty was aircraft carriers, uh, and 
I think there are signs that the Soviet Union had plans to build a whole fleet of, of aircraft carriers, perhaps to sort of to match the, the United States Navy. And they, they set up, you know, the, the kind of shipyard, the kind of equipment that you wouldn't put in if you were only going to build one or two. The strange thing about Mykolaiv is, is that now it is very much a Ukrainian city. Um, it's, people are still speaking Russian quite happily, as, as they do in most parts of Ukraine, including Kiev to this day. But they uh, are very hostile to the Russians for what they've done. Uh, I mean, I, I think this is a, an interesting kind of sidelight on the whole question of, of the, the, what is this, this nightly barrage of, of missiles against Mykolaiv for. Well, whatever it's for, it's not helping people feel good about Russia. If things went quiet for a few days, you might think, well, you know, maybe maybe this war needs to, to stop. Maybe it's senseless. Maybe we can make some kind of deal. You know, there are people who might start to think that and that number of people might grow. But every time um, a missile drops, I can't help thinking that like anyone, you would think, well, come on, how can we deal with these people if they if they just keep firing missiles at us? Um, so, um, yeah, so, so there is that, that, that mood in the city that it has become, um, quite, um, patriotic, but it is a transformation. I mean, it's, it's been 30 years after all, since the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, and I think that, um, for a long time, right up probably to the election of, of Zelensky, Nikolai was a little bit skeptical, shall we say, about the, the project of a, of a, a pro-European, European free Ukraine. And, and that went from being, uh, from sort of waiting for the Russians in the early years of independent Ukraine to, to a more political skepticism. So, you know, the, 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 the familiar divide in Ukrainian politics between those who prioritize um, a better relationship with Europe those who prioritize Ukrainian nationalism for its own sake, and those who prioritize closer relationships with Russia. So politically, until quite recently, Nikolaev would have been Nikolaev would have been firmly in the in the third category, and that's now changed. But yes, looking back to those to those days, it, it was an absolute bastion of the Soviet military, and proudly so. And this. There are these strange ironies about um, the current war. There was, there was general jubilation, I think it's fair to say, in Ukraine when the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva, was sunk by Ukrainian missiles in the Black Sea. Uh, but I think, especially amongst the older generation in Mykolaiv, there would have been rather more mixed feelings because that ship was built in Mykolaiv. And not only was it built in Mykolaiv, and then over a period of many years, refurbished in Mykolaiv. That, that was much more recent. That was in the after Ukraine became independent. They they got a contract from Russia to to refurbish the Moskva in their own shipyard. So it's, it's a very familiar vessel to the people of Mykolaiv. But not only that, in Mykolaiv right now there is this kind of ghostly double of the the now sunk Moskva called the Ukraina. An identical ship, uh, which was never finished. It was half finished, launched and half finished when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, and it's still sitting there, moored and rusting away on the on the wharves of of Mykolaiv. Perhaps in some distant corner of a a Russian admiral's mind, there's the thought that well, if we capture Mykolaiv, we can we can have a new Moskva. 
So it's also the site Mikolaev, it was a, a naval base for the Ukrainians and, and the only ship that they had really of any substance in their navy is now scuttled. Economically, you say in the piece that shipbuilding has largely been replaced by agriculture or agribusiness, these huge fields surrounding it. And then the film, that, the short film you made accompanying the piece, there's some, there's some footage of these fields on fire and firemen are there putting those fires out. But one thing that you also say is that one of the things that Putin wants here, as well as the bridgehead to the west, there is also a huge amount of fertile agricultural land and you say that one of the things he that the Russians would quite like to take possession of is this is this land for its own sake. The land certainly is extremely rich, and one of the um, one of the notable things about Russia itself in the past um, few decades is that there has been a great shift of the population from the kind of the the north, the more cold uh, regions, the more traditionally industrial regions to the south, to those southern regions of, of Russia, including Krasnodar, which is the, the region on the, on the Black Sea. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating. I, I can't see inside Putin's head. This is not a, um, an explicit part of, of, his, um, of his credo, except in the sense that he has said at various times and in various places that Ukraine or the southern part of Ukraine does belong to Russia. So, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty clear starting point. Um, but the specifics of that do seem likely to relate to this desire for um, to have a richer, more fertile area of land, but also um, a, a, a thickly populated area of, of land for a country which is shrinking in terms of people. Russia and uh, Ukraine are shrinking. You often hear the phrase demographic crisis in Russian policymaking. Um, and it may be in the back of their minds or even in the forefront of their minds that, well, here's a way to, to solve our population crisis by, crisis by taking somebody else's population and perhaps creating a more climatically speaking friendly uh, sort of environment for um, a, a more complete Russian realm in, in their minds within which um, our country can, can finally start to, and our people can finally start to grow again. Living room, Lebensraum, if you like. And um, that is the potential gain to, to Russia and, and very much the potential loss to Ukraine. I was going to say that the, um, the people I met haven't articulated this replacement of shipbuilding by agriculture, but actually that's not true. They, they do. People do talk about it. Um, you can't miss it, really. The fact that the shipbuilding really has died. It's not like on its knees or questions of will it survive. It's gone. It's over. There are no ships being built in Mikolaev now, and it, people don't seem to think that there ever will be again. But what has been built is, is a lot more inter, in a lot more uh, export capability for foodstuffs, particularly grain. But also there are huge changes taking place on the land that uh, the wider world hasn't really caught up with and the Ukrainians themselves haven't really caught up with. It's, it's something, it's one of these things that you're right, you're right in the middle of it a little bit. Uh, a change happens here, a change happens there. And it's only 20 years later when you sort of look back and think, oh my God, this was extraordinary. Uh, this transformation of 
collective farms, which are obviously a very, very big business in, in Soviet times, if, if business is the appropriate word, this transition from collective farms to dividing up land, not for sale, but for use by um, members of the, of the old commune. Everybody got their, their stake, their, their plot of um, a few hectares. And then the question is, well, what's going to happen next? You're not allowed to sell your land. So what can you do with it? Well, a lot of people, they rented it to farmers. So if you, you had 100 people with five hectares of land, that became a five hectare, 500 hectare farm where with 100 people collecting rent. Uh, now, that didn't always work out that well for anyone, but sometimes it did work out. Uh, sometimes it worked out at least for the farmer, if not for the the people who rented it. Sometimes it worked out for everyone. And there are huge question marks about the way that Ukraine has carried out land reform. Uh, and it's, it's, there have been many twists and turns, and many people have, have criticized it as exploitative and damaging to the environment. But at the same time, a lot of work has been done. And, and how never, no matter how exploitative that work is, it's, it's created an economy. Uh, a new economy of agriculture and along with that a lot of processing uh, a lot of um, export possibilities a lot of money has been made and some of that money has stayed in in the region so all this developing uh, system has now been broken by by the invasion although the exports and I said that grain exports have now resumed and... the exports start up again and um you know, from from being um, on its back, Ukraine has now kind of climbed to its knees, um, economically speaking. The, the the agriculture and these exports are absolutely critical to to the economy, and it is the the the, the fact that Putin allowed the blockade of Ukrainian ports, which he and he alone um, instituted, is the fact he allowed that to be partially lifted um, is is rather mysterious and. Uh, it's one of those aspects of the war that doesn't really quite add up. I mean, the most obvious reason that he did that would be because he was coming under pressure from the non-Western, if you like, countries, particularly in Africa and South Asia, whose support he, he depends on to counteract the lack of support. And also, hasn't one of the ships gone to Syria? So if Syria needs the grain, for example, as a... Yes, but that, that seems like the, the kind of small... Um, it, it, the picture is too big for that by itself to be to be a reason, because if it was just Syria, then they could get the they could get the the wheat they needed from from Russia, which is also an exporter. So I I, I don't I haven't looked deeply into this, and yeah, I, I know there's there's a suggestion that that by unlocking Ukrainian grain exports, Russia makes it possible for it then to to export grain. But still, it it doesn't really add up to me. And, and there are these, these peculiar aspects to the war that are a bit odd and, and suggest sort of backroom talks that we know nothing of. Uh, the other one, the most obvious one, being why have the Russians not blown up the other Dnieper bridges, the ones uh, that the Ukrainians are using to supply their forces um, in the east of the country? It's interesting, a lot of Russians have been asking this, a lot of sort of critics of Putin from the right, people who are even more nationalist than him, um, have been saying, why the hell are we letting the Ukrainians use these bridges? 
Um, but I, I also heard it in Mikolaev from, from Ukrainians who are equally puzzled and uh, obviously relieved that this hasn't happened, but it, it is a bit peculiar. Uh, so there are things going on that do seem to attest to some level of back-channel negotiations. You've mentioned the city of Zaporizhia a couple of times, um, and it's very much in the headlines at the moment because of the nuclear power station, the largest nuclear power station in Europe, where... Is it right that Russian troops are stationed there or that it's being shelled? And there's also reports that they're disconnecting the electricity. So it's now that sort of connecting it to the Russian grid rather than the, the Ukrainian grid. And the International Atomic Agency can't, can't get access and they're saying that they need urgent access to make sure it, it's safe. It's one of the um, most troubling developments in the war so far in the invasion so far, what's going on in, in Zaporizhia. There's been a lot of speculation, um, I, I think unfounded, um, that uh, if Putin really got backed into a corner in Ukraine, um, he would use a nuclear weapon to show how serious he was. Um, I, I never took that very seriously, but it does seem that the Russians are quite prepared to contemplate deliberately um, releasing radioactivity um, into Ukraine from this nuclear power station as a kind of a kind of halfway house between conventional warfare and, and nuclear warfare. It, it fits in with with the kind of secret agent spy mindset of Putin uh, trying to do things by the back door, trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, trying to throw confusion over everything. In, in the early days of the war, of the invasion, it was another big defeat for Ukraine in the south. Um, they lost Enerhodar, the city where the, uh, this power station is based. It's actually some way south of the, uh, of the city of Zaporizhia. They lost that. They lost control of the power station. There was great consternation that the Russians should even consider um, attacking uh, a nuclear power station with troops. But they did, and the Ukrainians didn't put up much resistance because they didn't want the, the place to be, uh, to be blown up. So things then went quiet the, um, for a while. The, uh, the nuclear power station is still connected to the Ukrainian grid. It, it's not a, a simple matter for the Russians to, to sort of steal the electricity from it. Um, so it's still supplying power to the whole of Ukraine, including the West. But lately, things have got have deteriorated. First of all, the Russians began using equipment that was sighted very close to the nuclear power station to bombard Ukrainian cities on the other side of the Dnieper. Then they began to move more and more military equipment into the nuclear power station. And then what happens next is, of course, disputed. But the Ukrainians have always been quite clear about this. Um, nuclear power station, which is held by Russia, has been shelled by the Russians. They claim, they've consistently claimed on a number of occasions um, over a period of many days that the Russians have been shelling the nuclear power station that they control in order to blame the Ukrainians. Of course, the Russians say, no, it's not us. It's the, it's the Ukrainians who are doing this. And um, one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are so keen to have external monitors at the nuclear power station is obviously to, to, to show the world what is actually going on. You may feel, others listening to this may feel, it is possible that the Ukrainians um, would shell the nuclear power station in order to make the Russians look bad. 
Personally, I doubt it, um, because after all, it is their country. Um, would there be anyone in, in Ukraine at any level so fanatical to wish to, to poison thousands of square miles of Ukraine forever in order to free it from the Russians? I, I doubt it. I may be wrong, I doubt it. Would Russia be prepared to create an artificial nuclear accident so that they could make the Ukrainians look bad? We shall see. I hope not. I mean, there's a sense possibly that, that Russia is, is just taking it close to the edge, that they don't really want a nuclear accident either, but they, they would like to make it look as if there's a terribly dangerous situation and it's all Ukraine's fault. I don't really see how they can succeed except in, in the minds of, of a few people who are already predisposed to, to forgive the Kremlin everything. But that doesn't mean they won't try. And, and I think the, the, the history of, of the Russian invasion and, and all previous Russian military adventures under Putin um, has, has always been to, to create this sense uh, of if I hit somebody, it's their fault. Uh, that, that's the basic policy. And, and I'll, I will hit somebody and I'll immediately accuse that person of, of hitting me. Everything is, is kind of guided by that principle. And so it, it is concerning. And um, it's, it's interesting that we've now got to the stage of agencies saying, we want to come, we're ready to come, we're ready to send inspectors, please allow us, Russia, to come and, and do this. And now the Russians have been put in the position where they are having to come up with reasons why they can't do this. So whether this Russian effort to, to discredit Ukraine will be sustainable, whether they would go as far as to actually contrive serious damage to the nuclear power station, risking uh, the release of radiation and a major nuclear accident that would affect the whole of Europe just to try and win points in the propaganda war remains to be seen. I, I, I would not rule it out, but I very much hope that wisdom prevails. James Meek, thank you very much. You can read James Meek's report from Mikhailov in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Jonathan Coe on AA-rated movies, Kasia Body on Donald Bartlemy, and Kathleen Jamie on Scotland's gannets afflicted by bird flu. The short film that accompanies James's piece is available on our website. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes, and the music is by Kieran Brunt.